Welcome back, everyone. This is Ryan Selkis. You're listening to another episode of Masari's Unqualified Opinions, where each week I discuss key industry trends with crypto's top investors, builders, and thinkers. Just a reminder, Masari is much more than a podcast company. So if you're an industry professional or crypto investor, head over to masari.io and check out Masari Pro, our crypto toolkit that offers best-in-class research, advanced screening, and charting tools to keep you ahead of the investing curve, plus a new enterprise alerts tool. We're also hosting the industry's largest virtual event, the Mainnet, this June 1st through 3rd, with over 50 hours of programming, 100 confirmed speakers, and virtual networking that's so seamless, you'll feel like you're actually there. 50% of the profits are heading to COVID relief, so go reserve your spot today at mainnet.com. Dot events. That's masari.io for pro research and tools and mainnet.events for the best virtual event you'll attend this year. With that, strap in for another episode. Going to be a good one. This episode of the podcast brought to you by Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only time-tested crypto tax software. Luca has listened to your feedback and now lets you calculate capital gains and losses, seeing the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side, all for free. You only pay if you want to see their detailed tax reports and submit your forms using their software. Luca supports unlimited transaction downloads from all major exchanges and wallets and helps you optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refunds or minimize how much you have to pay. Luca wants to help Masari's Unqualified Opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code MasariTax and you'll get a discount. Much more importantly, you'll do your taxes correctly and stay out of jail. Download LucaTax at Luca with two Ks, tax.com, and save money this tax season. This episode of the podcast brought to you by crypto.com. We know times are tough. That's why crypto.com is introducing three different measures to help its community with their new crypto.com app and credit card. First, they're waiving the three and a half percent credit card fee on all crypto purchases in the next three months. They're also offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more with 20% back on food and additional 10% back on groceries. So download the crypto.com app today. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the top blockchain events and media production companies I've worked with for exclusive content and events that could help you with insight into the crypto and blockchain space. Check them out at blockworksgroup.io and you will not be disappointed. All right, everyone, welcome back to Masari's Unqualified Opinions. I'm Ryan Selkis at 2BitIdiots with another suit and tie guest today, Tom Chippas. He's the CEO of Erisex. I find this very humorous because during the work from home period, Tom is clearly now in a Silicon Valley outfit when normally his clientele would expect a suit and tie, whereas I am usually in the Silicon Valley outfit and now I'm just wearing my workout clothes because fuck it. <laughs> so, so I feel like we've both downgraded a little bit, but, um, but, but you're still like a level up uh, in, in terms of the dress code, which I appreciate and, uh, and find you know, pretty, pretty funny. Tom, uh, I've known you for a while. We've interacted uh, over the course of, of years back when you were at Citadel, um, you know, again, uh, when you were um, at Exani, which used to be Tradeblock, uh, and now are kind of two parallel entities. And, uh, and, and for the last couple of years, you've been working on Aerosex. You've had a whole slew of announcements uh, in, in terms of institutional partners over the last com- uh, couple of weeks. We're going to get into all that, but for starters, let's talk about your kind of red pill story, uh, a little bit about your background and ultimately what in your background 
got you interested in blockchain technology at first and then kind of crypto assets specifically uh, as you went down this path uh, from the traditional realm into a decidedly different and much more Wild West frontier. Yeah, thanks, Ron, and thank you for having me. Um, you're absolutely right, I think, to, to say initially the, the blockchain path, as you recall, when we first started chatting, I, I unabashedly was in the, let's talk about the blockchain, this crypto thing, you know, I'm not, I'm not interested in this. And that was mm-hmm. whatever it was, 20, 2014, 2015, whatever it may have been. Uh, and for me, looking at the blockchain side of things at the time, I was falling back upon some of my experience in capital markets where trying to have multi-party processing of financial transactions that had different life cycle events um, that were causing inefficiencies, inefficiencies on capital utilization, inefficiencies on risk management, um, inefficiencies in trade settlement. And I really saw some potential in the technology. Uh, But those early days were so crowded with wild claims and, uh, you know, over amplified desires to change everything overnight uh, in a capital market system that by design changes slowly, right? The, The appetite to change risk management and settlement processing and things like that from a regulatory perspective is slow. If it's working even inefficiently, that's better than an unknown thing that may be more efficient. Let's be prudent. Let's be thoughtful. And that sort of view trickles to the folks in the capital market space, the process, banks, clearing houses, exchanges, what have you. But I was intrigued, started down the path and um, certainly really proud of the time I spent working with the team at Axani, who I think is really done a great job pushing for the, the, the DLT story um, in derivatives specifically. And they've done a lot of good things there. And I think have started to prove out those uh, early day uh, assumptions I had about the potential for this technology to improve things like CDS processing and equity swaps processing and other use cases. Mm-hmm. From there, for me, uh, certainly being at Exani, uh, where, as you point out, there were two businesses, uh, Trade Block, which is really you know market data, indices, OMS, EMS, these sorts of things within the crypto space. And then separately, the DLT company, I was very focused on the Exani side, but always with a sort of eye over my shoulder looking at what was going on with trade block and the trader in me just was constantly intrigued at the market structure, the way the markets were operating at a physical level, the lack of interconnectivity, the volatility, all sorts of things that were very different than equities, options, futures, rates, what have you, things that I was more familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. so it was in the back of my mind and I would say, you know, on my own time, on my own homework, I kept looking at crypto markets and starting getting involved personally. Uh, and then just, as the rest of the maturation process started to move from that period to, to now, and obviously explosive growth in uh, non-US exchanges, US exchanges, the various uh, understanding of the economic impact uh, of something like a non-sovereign store of value could have. And uh, you know, for me, just keeping a constant eye on it, I reached a, a, an apogee uh, where when the opportunity for RSX came, just was the only thing I could see myself doing because it is truly an intersection of market structure, an opportunity to build something different and do it in the crypto space. So um, I'm now passively watching DLT and more focused obviously on the crypto side of things, but unabashedly started on the DLT side before getting to where I'm at today. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's talk about the uh, the institutional landscape because there's, um, there's, I'd say three core things, but, you know, uh, fill in the, the gaps here for, for you know, a, a more nuanced understanding. 
there's three core things that are, have prevented institutional purchasing uh, and the, the first uh, step in the on-ramp historically. One has been data integrity, which not only impacts compliance teams in terms of how they're thinking about market to market, but much more importantly, makes it difficult to prove that a trade was executed at the best bidder offer. Right. Um, so, so data integrity and uh, is probably you know number one, which trickles upstream to the exchanges that are actually providing that data. Um, the second is institutional custody, uh, and just how a money manager can get their um, legal teams comfortable with actually making a purchase that isn't just going to evaporate via some some type of hack. Right. Um, and then the third is. Uh, on the regulatory side. So, you know, in, in the U.S. and most of the Western you know, economies, for the most part, um, that's been, you know, you could argue largely solved, at least for Bitcoin, but other assets, you know, are, are going to be a slow and steady process to um, get institutions comfortable. In reality, it doesn't really matter because the first step is almost always Bitcoin if you're talking about institutional allocations. Um, beyond that, there's a whole slew of tools that need to be built in in reality to actually smooth that user experience for um, a large asset manager or a large bank or, or, or hedge fund. Um, and we're just starting to see, you know, products like Aerosex, like what BACT is building, like Fidelity um, come to market that are, are, are satisfying, adequately satisfying this niche. Um, and, and I say niche, uh, maybe like in, in air quotes, because I think we all know that it, it should be the, the biggest driver of long-term value and, and growth. And, and ultimately, that will have a trickle-down effect on the rest of the industry, just given the, the enormous amount of money that has been sitting on the sidelines historically. What are some of the critical things that you are tackling and, and, and the pieces of that puzzle that are internal at Aerosex versus what... Uh, are you leaving up to your partners and, and, and how do you put this jigsaw puzzle together when you try to come up with a full stack alternative to what uh, these investors would expect from a, a legacy asset class versus this new novel asset class that presents a few challenges where, you know, liquidity is pooled and unregulated exchanges, you know, custody is not a solved problem yet. Um, and and you know, things move 24 seven. So you don't have the same capacity to um, you know, in, enforce some traditional regulatory structures. Um, you cover a few pieces of that, but I'm, I'm curious what is fully in-house versus what uh, you, you work with other partners on. Yeah, I, I think actually your last comment, Ryan, uh, regarding there's different pieces in this chain are really the important ones. And certainly you know, from day one for ErisX, it's been about providing very specific services in a very specific way under very specific regulatory regimes. And all that specificity comes together in that we are an exchange and a clearinghouse. We're not a broker dealer. We're not an asset manager. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not a proprietary trading desk. We're not an agency trading desk. If you look at traditional asset classes, take equities, for example, you know, your broker, whether you're retail and you're someone like TD Ameritrade or TradeStation or E-Trade or what have you, Fidelity, or if you're institutional and you trade through UBS, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, and Citi, you're dealing with a broker. You and I as individuals and investment managers that run mutual funds are not members, are not participants directly in an exchange. They go through intermediaries. And that's because 
there's different roles to be played. And those different roles manage different aspects of risk, transaction processing, and are regulated differently as well, too. That hasn't been the case in crypto, right? Complete and total vertical integration has been the business model from from early days. And I think that works to some extent in retail, but there's also some things that don't work in that model. And uh, I could take you through some of those pieces. I mean, addressing some of your um, uh, comments directly, for example, around data integrity, you know, the concept of getting the best price, the concept of best execution, certainly mm -hmm. something that exists um, under regulation in the US today for things like equities. And by and large, it works exceedingly well. You're going to get probably the best possible price. There's an argument in equity spheres about uh, price uh, discovery and how prices are displayed. But by and large, if you compare how people do today versus how they did previous to regulation NMS going live back in 2007, it's, it's far superior today. And then you have similar things in Western Europe that came about under uh, MIFID and MIFID II and other regulations that were put in place there. It doesn't matter in other markets where you have monopoly uh, equities exchanges. There's only one place to trade. Uh, you're going to get the price that's on that particular market. There's a different argument for what best is, but you're not dealing with, hey, there's 10 different places with a quote. Who's got the best quote, the most depth, et cetera. Futures in the US only trade on one exchange. You, you can't trade an S&P 500 future anywhere other than the CME. So mm -hmm. best X again takes place on one market, not multiple. So the whole data integrity issue, I think is an interesting one because if Bitcoin, for example, is being looked at OTC venues versus exchanges, that tends to look a little bit more like what you have in FX today, where you have OTC providers of FX liquidity, and you have uh, pooled market centers. They're not exchanges, but they're market centers where uh, some sort of matching engine is offering bids and offers for you to interact with as well, too. There's no law that says you have to get best X on your uh, US dollar you know, uh, sterling pair. Um, mm -hmm. There's tools and there's entities that provide those tools that help you uh, make the judgments whether or not you've gotten the best possible execution, which, by the way, doesn't always mean the best possible price. There are other aspects to execution, size, uh, risk, market impact, these sorts of things. So the data integrity issue, I think, is maturing in the sense that there are different venues and there are people providing tools for multi-venue access. It tends to come up more when we're talking about the creation of investment vehicles, um, mm -hmm. ETF, a mutual fund, et cetera. That's where this tends to come up. And I firmly believe that there is ample data that can be utilized to prove the sufficiency of the prices those funds receive. It, is it done under the, a perfect regime as you have, say, in the U.S. in equities? And you know, perfect, of course, I'm, I'm not saying perfectly perfect, but one that's well-monitored, robust, and, and, and mature. Um, no, it doesn't operate that way. But there's also 24 by 7 liquidity with a plethora of prices and venues that can provide it where market manipulation, if that's your concern, I think it can be seen and the impact of it can be mitigated. And I think there's plenty of studies that have already been done to, to indicate there's uh, high degrees of integrity in the data that could be used for the purposes of pricing some sort of pooled investment vehicle. So I think that one's come along pretty well, actually, uh, in my opinion. How, how do you do the risk scoring for international exchanges then, right? So, so we, we have our real 10 volumes. Um, and we've struggled with this for a while because this reflects the bitwise exchange uh, exchanges that have, have made it, you know, uh, that have passed muster according to this very rigorous study that they did and they've kept updated. We know it's woefully incomplete. 
and are actively working on updates to that real volume metric that will be more accurate if less precise, if that makes sense. And the reason is everybody knows that price discovery is happening on Bitmex, on Wobi, on Binance International, and OKX, right? Uh, and then you know, maybe to a lesser extent, some of the other futures uh, exchanges as well. Um, at the same time, you know, the real 10 exchange is very Western focused. So it kind of, it, it ignores the very real liquidity and where you, you could argue the lion's share of price discovery is happening. The the day-to-day price doesn't change that much depending on which constituents you use um, one way or the other. But uh, from a from an institutional purchaser standpoint, you're talking about two separate things. You're talking about the structure of financial products, and then you're talking about just getting institution uh, institution coverage. So when you think about um, the risk of best execution for a new client, um, what what are the uh, rules that you have in place in terms of uh, data inputs or, or different exchanges that you can connect to, or um, do you need to basically create a layer of abstraction between the less regulated Wild West international exchanges and maybe like an OTC desk that will do business with them, but is regulated in the U.S. So you've basically pushed all of that regulatory risk uh, onto a, a, a third party that kind of sits somewhere in the middle. How, how does this play out in practice? Yeah, I think there is a couple of, of, of points um, that I think about as well, too. So first and foremost, as an exchange, we're, we're not routing to other exchanges. We don't have interconnectivity today. And most of the ones in the, in the Western space do not. Um, it's an interesting argument as to whether or not that should come from an exchange or come from the third-party provider. Certainly in equities, the exchanges provide routing. There's also third-party routing. And I like the idea of having multiple solutions uh, so customers and market participants can pick what will work best for them. Mm-hmm. With respect to uh, where price discovery takes place, you know, if, if Bitcoin's a commodity, if Ether's a commodity, we certainly believe they are, typical commodities have their price set in the futures market. That's the delivery price for the commodity. But I think we have a such a deep and robust and liquid spot market, that sort of market dynamic hasn't fully matured yet um, with respect to the derivative setting the delivery price as it does for hard commodities today. Mm-hmm. So, with that being stated, you're absolutely right. There's substantial price discovery taking place on the, you know, non-US, um, on lightly or, or however you want to describe the regulatory status of some of those entities. Um, that is undeniably happening. The volume is there, and price discovery is taking place there. But my earlier comment about integrity comes from the fact that you can only, if you're going to engage in manipulative activity, you can only engage in it so far for so long until it actually creates an opportunity for somebody else to trade at a what they think is a better price. Maybe not at that point in time, but they're saying, look, you've suppressed it so far. Once this unnatural suppression, which will cost this bad actor so much money to sustain, then, hey, I could have picked up this asset cheap somewhere else where I have high degrees of integrity and wait for that price to go up. Now, that's not helpful if you're just trying to get in today and buy some Bitcoin right now. You want to get the best possible price right now. But my earlier comment about the number of venues, and I would agree with your comment that price generally is very tightly clustered, tells me that there's only so much that can happen uh, in a market where someone's trying to do something bad. And it's because there are so many other places to trade. Um, that it creates that that arbitrage I described. And that's a good natural 
suppression mechanism, uh, multiple venues with different players trading at different time horizons for different purposes helps collapse down that arbitrage. So if we were winding the clock back several years ago, and you didn't have fully professional market making firms, you know, like Cumberland and Susquehanna and Flow Traders and Virtu and people like this involved in the markets, I, I'd be pretty worried. But the more involvement you get from entities like that, that uh, malpricing for whatever reason might be taking place on venue X is an opportunity to capture arbitrage because of the price on venue, you know, A through A through Z, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the more you see those players come in, the more uh, confident I become that no matter what the, the, the mal reason might be for, it doesn't matter. It's an arbitrage opportunity and the most things will be collapsed down. That market solution is the best one I can think of. Um, with that said, some of the third-party providers of technology that purport to route across different venues do have um, algorithms that, let's call it, provide a score. I'm not saying this is their term, but they score the quote, and they look at it for its integrity and depth, and how many times do I send an order for a quote that's displayed, do I actually get it? That hit rate, that fulfillment rate, um, says a lot about whether it's a real quote or was someone just flashing it there and then pulling it at the last second. So, you know, very low fill rates would be an indicator of there being some sort of problem in the liquidity stack of that particular venue. You also have to look at the difficulty of routing across the different venues because the fee tables are all so very, very different. So do you want the best display price? Do you want the best display price modified by the fee? Do you want the best display price modified by the fee, but also with some takedown for the display quantity because our hit rate is so low, we don't think we'll get the whole thing. We don't want to pollute our artificial top of book. There's lots of factors. There's more mental and physical horsepower that can be employed in these things than we can even dream of. Um, and the fact of the matter is these tools exist today. They're not widely used yet, but I think their usage is coming up. So we would view ourselves as uh, a member of uh, of the, the market structure where our quote is being provided perhaps to one of those utilities so that we could be uh, hit and lifted as people are searching the quote. With that said, I don't know that top of book best price is the only factor for best execution today. We're not trading a, a share of Amazon. Um, we're talking about something that has uh, different characteristics. So the underlying integrity of the market center, the counterparty worthiness, the counterparty risk assessment, um, what's the value of coming to somewhere like Aerosex with a regulated clearinghouse that's distinct from the exchange uh, that holds cash, that holds collateral, um, that has value. And if our quote might not always be the inside, then the investor, the market participant, the trader is going to have to decide, well, do I just care about the price or do I want to take counterparty risk into, into my calculus? And I'll tell you, as a longtime market participant, everyone talks about counterparty risk. No one cares about it until they care about it. And when they care, it's usually because something very, very bad is happening. Most institutions think about this a priori. They think about it before they get involved. Most retail or semi-pros that came up through retail They'll just say, look, I traded today, I got it, I'm done. That's great. But if I'm running a large mutual fund where I'm regulated myself as an investment manager, I have to think about counterparty risk and integrity and that comes into my, my best tax analysis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Luca. Save money this tax season with Luca Tax, the only time-tested crypto tax software. Luca has listened to your feedback and now lets you calculate capital gains and losses, seeing the results using three different accounting methods side-by-side, all for free. You only pay if you want to see their detailed tax reports and submit your forms using their software. Luca supports unlimited transaction downloads from all major exchanges and wallets. 
and helps you optimize your tax reporting so you can max out this year's refunds or minimize how much you have to pay. Luca wants to help Masari's unqualified opinions listeners save even more this year. So use promo code Masari Tax and you'll get a discount. Much more importantly, you'll do your taxes correctly and stay out of jail. Download Luca Tax at Luca with two K's tax.com and save money this tax season. This episode of the podcast brought to you by crypto.com. We know times are tough. That's why crypto.com is introducing three different measures to help its community with their new crypto.com app and credit card. First, they're waiving the 3.5% credit card fee on all crypto purchases in the next three months. They're also offering 10% back when you use the MCO Visa card on food and grocery shopping. And as always, you can buy gift cards on the crypto.com app for merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, and more with 20% back on food and an additional 10% back on groceries. So download the crypto.com app today. I mean, where, where are volumes for ErisX in, in the context of the broader market? Because to, to my knowledge, um, at least we're not familiar with, with any you know, accessible endpoints that you have to understand you know, just how much uh, liquidity is um, available in your, um, on your spot exchange or your futures market. You know, you've, you've unveiled a few new offerings. You've got a, a ton of um, large customers, but you don't see ErisX on like the the coin market cap crypto compare or, you know, Masari rankings. Is that something that will change or, or is there a method to the madness there? And, and is that intentional to maintain um, client privacy or, or just trade secrets? Um, a little column A, a little column B. <laughs> um, so uh, yes, we're, we're not on any of those uh, services today. Um, our market's growing, Ryan. The numbers are, mm -hmm. are relatively modest right now. And, you know, to be candid, the uh, the view in crypto still tends to be, hey, it's not a roaring success overnight. You failed, and that's not what we're trying to achieve here. So our customer mm -hmm. um, privacy, and you know, we're under no obligation to disclose the spot market volumes, but obviously, it's a common practice. I don't deny that. So I suggest mm -hmm. that right now, it's you know, modest and growing. We've just started to turn on some of these intermediaries. The market takes time to mature when you're growing it fully naturally, like we are. We're not paying anyone to make liquidity. We don't have an in-house market maker. Um, we don't have an affiliate that's making markets. We've done none of those things today. And growing mm -hmm. it naturally is a little bit different than perhaps some of the methods utilized in other exchanges to uh, uh, have their volume uh, look better. So uh, not displayed out there today, modest and growing. I would expect that to change later where we can do it in a way that won't betray the anonymity of what's going on. It, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that you uh, position it like this. So first of all, I agree, given your, your target demographic. And I think what people um, generally don't understand in an otherwise retail-driven market is there are some headlines and partnership announcements that are made that don't mean a fucking thing. And then um, there are data sets uh, that are unavailable that either mean a lot or mean next to nothing. But I think that you have to kind of put everything in a, a two by two matrix. And when you're talking about institutional tools, the headlines matter a lot more if they're actual trading integrations versus, you know, exploratory calls and, and, and kind of jumping the gun. Um, so, you can envision uh, plenty of scenarios where, you know, having TradeStation, having Fidelity, having some of these other large partners that you guys have onboarded really just in the last couple of months um, as being the critical, you know, first step in going from, you know, zero to one of the most liquid exchanges um, in the West and, and, you know, maybe, you know, beyond that uh, after a certain period of time. But because there is no 
uh, internal market maker because you have to do the hard work of actually letting this uh, infrastructure develop and these markets develop organically. How do you um, how do you get to that point, right? Because liquidity begets liquidity. Everybody knows the issues with BitMEX. Doesn't matter, right? It's still the most liquid place to buy and sell Bitcoin globally. Bitfinex, same thing. You know you've got issues with Tether. You know that you've had a history of a, a couple of different hacks and vulnerabilities. Doesn't matter. They've got staying power. You know that's where liquidity is concentrated. Um, for long tail assets, you can say the same thing maybe about Binance. And um, the trick historically for investors has been, how can I get my compliance team comfortable with going to where the liquidity is? The approach that you and I think your clients are taking necessarily, given how much more heavily regulated they are, has to be, um, this is not a walled garden, but it's probably the safest place that you're going to be able to participate. But now we need to find the liquidity. Now we need to be, you know, kind of organically bootstrap the, uh, the, the central limit order book. Um, so that this is attractive. And, and, you know, right now you're at kind of a, a diametrically opposite side of, of, you know, this liquidity compliance matrix. Um, I'm curious what tangible steps without naming names um, have to happen to close the gap, even begin to close the gap, because there's a big difference between modest, which is, hey, the, the system works and customers are comfortable, and actually being a Frankly, an exchange that matters um, in the in the global scheme of, of crypto. Yeah, well, I think first thing I'd say is we're talking about spot futures is a completely different kettle of fish, and especially when you're talking about it uh, in the U.S. But with respect to how does it grow, um, it, we are doing a number of things. Uh, first and foremost, market makers will go where the liquidity is. So as liquidity increases or demand on our book increases, market makers can step up and provide more liquidity. That's very straightforward for them and very clear for them. And they trade where there's trading to be done. So I'm not as concerned about the uh, liquidity provisioning side of things. It is on the demand side and different than an exchange that is exclusively going to retail direct. And again, we, we do offer direct retail as well, but focus on the intermediaries, which is where we see the growth coming from, you need a couple things to happen. So things like our announcement over the last week with TradeStation and Fidelity are first steps. They're not the last step. They're the first step. There needs to be education for their customers. They need to think about their asset allocation models. They need to think about the services they're offering their clients. And we work with them to make sure that our services are complementary and, and, and accretive and additive in those regards. But what would it mean for registered investment advisors to start suggesting to their clients of, say, medium to high risk tolerance that you should have 1% of your assets in Bitcoin? That would be a substantial amount of flow that has to come in. And for that to come in, it's not going to go in through an account at BitMEX or Dearbit, and it's probably not going to go in to an account at one of the Western or U.S. known crypto exchanges as well, too, because they don't have the methods, the systems, and the appropriate means to, to manage that sort of flow. It's a very different workflow. It's a very mm -hmm. different type of processing. But what it means is over time is those sorts of fundamental changes start to take place. We do start to be the beneficiary of it, and that starts to grow the demand side of our book. Um, in addition, you know, we are working with miners and other folks in the commodity producer chain that we think will, will benefit from our model where we have both a spot market and a derivatives market. It starts to look a lot more akin to how commodity producers interact at places like CME or ICE or what have you with, with hard commodities where, hey, I'm a producer. 
have a bunch of costs and inputs that go into the creation or extraction or refinement of this commodity. And it would be great if I could have something better than a guess at what the spot price will be when I have a commodity. I'd like to be able to sell it now and then deliver it later. And you can't do that if all you have is a derivative uh, because ultimately they're going to either have the commodity itself to use as collateral. So they need to bring that spot uh, uh, inventory in and or they're going to want to trade between the two um, as the market still is imperfect and, and, and maturing. So from our perspective, it's just whittling away every day at bringing on that other side of the book and continuing to build good, strong relationships with the world-class market makers we have um, who can provide more and more of that liquidity. So it's certainly not uh, you know bang zoom fireworks. It's definitely a lot more of slow, boring grinding, and uh, you know maybe we're just gluttons for punishment, but it works well for us. Well, I mean, it, it's um, just like anything else, right? Uh, you know, you can you can rapidly iterate, and you can make very very quick progress if you're talking about. Um, you know, retail or where you're talking about, you know, hobbyists that are, are going to have a higher tolerance. Um, it's much, much more difficult to actually get this done at institutional grade um, because you're talking about, you know, oil tankers turning around in the middle of a, a storm, particularly right now, right? I mean, that, that's literally, you're trying to get attention and, and kind of get internal resources, some of these big markets uh, or, or, or big institutional players at a time when, when the global markets in general are in turmoil. And you could argue, you know, crypto had a, a, a pretty particularly high profile black eye, not just because of Black Thursday and the price action, but because of how it went down um, and how prices were dragged lower based on this cascading issue with BitMEX, um, allegedly or almost certainly at this point. I don't, I don't want to get into trouble, but I think everybody knows what happened. Um, the, uh, I'm curious how... Has the narrative changed? How has the um, how has the momentum changed at all so far this year? Because some of what you've announced is the result of years of work um, with some of these partners, because that's that's what the cycle uh, looks like. I'm curious what type of disruption you have in the middle of the uh, customer development funnel now that a lot of these teams are distracted and maybe there's slightly less urgency to move forward with with crypto. Um, given all the other competing priorities and the, the tumults of the, uh, the broader macro markets more recently. Yeah, getting mind share is always tough, tougher now. Uh, I'd agree with that. Um, I'd say it's not a, a, our customer base isn't homogeneous, so the answers don't universally apply to everybody. Mm -hmm. But in a very well, let's break them down. Yeah. I mean, how, how, would, how, would you, how would you segment the professional market right now and, and kind of where we are in the maturity curve? Yeah, so we look at people like market makers who are uh, trading typically for their own book. Uh, someone like Virtue is a publicly traded company, but you look at market makers and just I'm using names that people will be familiar with. I'm certainly mm -hmm. fine that people are, aren't doing things on our market, but uh, you have market makers like a Virtue, a Cumberland, a, a, a Susquehanna, a Flow Traders, what have you. Um, fully professional, they haven't skipped a beat. Um, they're trading, managing risk every single day. Um, you have professional trading firms that look a lot like market makers. The difference in our market is a market maker has signed up for a market maker program and there's metrics around how they trade and that impacts the rate card and things of that nature. Um, you have intermediaries and intermediaries can be of different flavors. So they can be a trade station, a fidelity, a TD Ameritrade, an E-Trade, someone like this. Um, or they can be an institutional intermediary, uh, someone like an EDF man or other futures commission merchants that intermediate on behalf of institutions. 
Um, and then we have uh, asset managers, and those asset managers can be organized in a traditional way. Maybe they operate a, a some sort of regulated 40 Act fund, or perhaps mm -hmm. organized more as hedge fund. Um, and then you have the uh, direct to to retail uh, as well to where you know, two legged carbon based life forms sign up for for account. So that's how we mm -hmm. break it down. Uh, Two-legged people, I think, have time on their hands and interest to trade, and they continue to do so. Market makers, as I said, managing risk, professional trading shops, same thing. It's in that intermediary space, I'd say, where we experience a little bit of a – it's wrong to call it a slowdown. I mean, we're going through something that no one that's alive has ever experienced before, so reasonably so. People are dealing with personal issues, professional issues, et cetera. But by and large, I'd say after a couple weeks of – universal work from home was in place, things got back on track. And I would argue that in some instances, being at home, just pounding away at the inbox has seemed to benefit us in some cases as well, too. Um, yep. You know, we've had the Fidelity announcement and Trace Station announcement, both the things you rightly point out have been in the works for a while. Those things take time because of the nature of what we're doing and we're all regulated entities and, and working through a variety of priorities. We have some other things that we think will be very interested in coming out soon, um, but all of them are a function of us just never letting the momentum stop. You know, the thing I always say to our business development team, our product team, et cetera, is look, I wish every day could be peak efficiency. It would be wonderful if we were just operating at that peak efficiency with the movement of customers every single day, but we're not the only input to that equation. Customer is a massive input to that equation. And some days they're going to give you everything. Some days they might give you very little. But our goal is to make sure that at least every day the four momentum doesn't stop. I want max momentum, but I'm a realist. And the folks we're dealing with aren't always going to have us as their number one priority. So our goal is to make sure that at least we don't come to a standstill. Uh, at least we're always moving forward. So I would say that we're firing all cylinders at this point. I would say... Uh, that our target market, our market participants are as well too. Um, and people have, have adjusted themselves to, to this to this environment. But I, I, I don't want to name names, but in some places I honestly truly think being home has helped move things faster, um, fewer distractions. And I think also if you look at the retail intermediary side of things, and this is a macro comment, not, not, a, not a comment on any one particular participant, let's look at what's happened over the last six months or so. Uh, Robinhood was going to take over the world. Everyone was going to zero dollars. Then that party was joined by other people, um, SoFi and, and Square and others. And you know that drove a, a massive upheaval in the market, uh, acquisition and M&A, uh, reducing fees to zero. And then several months later, we have this massive spike in market volatility and a ton of trading volume, all of which is being charged zero dollars of commission. And then interest rates are dropping. And that's really where those retail intermediaries were making uh, a lot of uh, their profits were out of, uh, you know, banking those cash holdings and, and uh, generating interest income on it. So I think it's a very challenging time. For and, and, and they also assumed that their systems wouldn't break at the most important yeah. hour. <laughs> I mean, for the most part, I think uh, some fared better than others. You know, it, it, again, it's one of those things, Ryan, where no one thinks about counterparty worthiness until it's a problem. And, it, and people are usually only noticing it's a problem when it's already on fire. Um, no one gets patted on the head for saying, hey, I opened the, the door to the fridge and the beer was cold. No one notices mm -hmm. it's warm. So I would say, by and large, the challenges faced by the retail intermediaries have been truly unique. I can't point to any time in history where they've had these this confluence of challenges and they've all performed 
admirably. Doesn't mean flawlessly. You point out some did have issues, but I think it's just been fascinating to watch the the new business model proffered by Robinhood and others, and then some of the folks that have sort of joined the bid on on that business model who have perhaps you know deeper history on operations, and all these things are coming together in interesting ways. And I think people are going to choose their provider, uh, but ultimately. All of them have, I think, with great integrity, continue to move forward. I can't point to anyone that we're talking to that has simply put their heads down and said, leave me alone. We have to wait for this to blow over. If everyone recognizes that, although the new normal is unknown, it's not going away anytime soon. So we need to continue to make forward progress. And that's, that's part of the way we try to engage. It's why I'm always telling my team, momentum every day, it, sometimes fast, sometimes slow. But overall, I'd say... Nothing's holding us up now because of the, the lockdowns or what have you. We're fully engaged, and it's really great to see the people that were in outreach with fully engaged as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I guess what do you expect for the remainder of the year, both with ErisX and then in terms of ongoing changes in the in the broader global exchange uh, landscape? Do you expect um, the spot markets to continue to uh, develop at the same pace as the futures market. It seems like we've kind of gone all the way in the other direction, at least for a while, in over-levering crypto trading. And now there's been a deleveraging because of the, the flight to liquidity in general, but but particularly fear about some of the, co- the counterparty risk. Um, uh, and, and, and how do you, uh, you at Arisex, view the opportunities there in spot versus futures? Yeah, I mean, for us, we started with spot, uh, and the spot underpins our physically delivered future. So we have to have that, and we'll continue to support that. Um, you know, there isn't some magic feature that we could build on our spot market today that would bring all these other people into it. I think we have a robust market with a very deep feature set. Um, some of the best technology out there today, built by markets professionals for volume, throughput, low standard deviation of performance. Um, we built a brand new clearing system from scratch. No, no one's built a brand new derivatives and spot clearing system from scratch since, I don't know, since we were texting by having to go one 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 two 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 three three three. 333 right? It's been a while. So we built some great technology and, and that's nice. No one pays us to do that. It's something we need to do, but it's nice to know that the team has gone about and done it in the right way. But with that strong foundation, modern technology, very flexible, you know, we have a very good spot market foundation that will continue to grow. And I think spot market volumes will continue to grow. I don't think it's going to be meteoric growth. I think it's going to be steady growth. Uh, despite the uh, negative consequences you've observed in some non-US derivatives markets, I think there's a ton of headroom for growth in US derivatives. If you, if you look at the landscape today, there's very little choice for people. You know, we have a moderately sized Bitcoin, physically delivered Bitcoin futures contract as a tenth of a Bitcoin. That's very retail friendly. Um, we have other futures in the pipeline. But if I were to summarize our focus for the rest of the year, it's it's on derivatives. They're going to be appealing to the retail market. We think that the U.S. market today uh, has a lot of pent-up interest in this. There are a lot of very seasoned, very savvy uh, professional traders that want to trade these products but don't want to do it offshore. They like the integrity of what the CFTC framework provides from the derivatives perspective. And you know they don't need 125X to trade. They'd be happy with a much more moderate amount of, of margin being made available to them. So our futures products today 
are fully funded. Uh, margin can be achieved or leverage can be achieved by going through an intermediary who can do it through other means. Natively in our clearinghouse, we don't offer it yet. That's on a roadmap for this year. There's technology, there's risk, there's regulatory things that have to be done before we can offer that. That is, that is firmly on our roadmap for this year. We also think access products that are unique and give people the opportunity to trade around some of the volatility that's in the market today that removes some of the frictions of delivery that exist today will be interesting as well. So we'll have more to say on that with the product we have in the pipeline right now. So short strokes, we're, we're continuing to support our spot market. We think we have a very robust platform. It's grinding out with all the market participants we want on board to make sure they have what they need and they're ticking all the regulatory boxes, custody boxes, et cetera. But really for us, the, the majority of our product and engineering effort will, will be focused on uh, derivatives that are appealing to the retail market. Awesome. Um, well, uh, Tom, I think it's uh, it, it's certainly been exciting to watch this play out over the course of the last uh, really couple of, of years uh, and, and see so many of these projects come to fruition and, and you know, come public. Um, and really just the last few weeks uh, kind of in the in the midst of the pandemic so it certainly looks like you've been hammering away at the inbox um and uh and i'm curious for for folks that are trying to learn more about aerosex um or you know otherwise you know get involved or or, or consider uh actually integrating with the platform how can they uh learn more and and uh, get over this hurdle of of understanding exactly what's getting built on the inside, since you, you tend to keep a lower profile on some of the other exchanges. Yes, uh, we're, we're not we're the opposite ends of the Twitter spectrum, Ryan. Uh, but uh, so I mean, obviously, erisx.com, erisx digital on Twitter, uh, erisx insights on Medium. So erisx.com has all the links. That's the best place to start. I think you've probably seen we're very active on market structure pieces. We put a lot of thought into topics, whether it's things like um, the RFI response we filed last year with respect to Ethereum. You've written about simple but order books versus OTC markets. Um, so we you know, tend to spend a lot of time thinking, and there's a lot of pieces out there uh, on Medium we've written. If you're looking to get a flavor for how we see the markets and see the world. Uh, but any of those channels, you can hit us up and uh, we'll be able to uh, you know, respond in kind. Are, are you mostly focused on Western markets? Is there any Eastern presence at this point? We have customers from Asia today, uh, without mm -hmm. a doubt. Like, obviously, we have uh, the MSB MTL regulatory construct pretty well in, in hand here in the US. We have our CFTC license operate an exchange called the DCM and the CFTC license operate clearinghouse called DCO. And there, there's not that many DCOs out there, by the way, it's a pretty difficult license to, to get. Um, with that, uh, you know, we can pursue customers here in the U S but we can also bring in customers from certain places outside the U S as well too. So uh, it's not, we're not onboarding or going after, uh, you know, two legged people in non U S countries, but entities that are organized you know, professionally in some sort of corporate form. Uh, we definitely have those on board already from places like Singapore, Hong Kong, UK, Western Europe, et cetera. So we're not trying to go head to head uh, from a product perspective in those markets because it's very difficult to operate in a highly regulated, um, you know, constructs we have here in the U.S. You know, the regulator knows where to find me if they want me. I don't mm -hmm. think that that applies to everyone operating exchanges elsewhere. Uh, so we're not trying to compete in, in an unlevel playing field there, but we do have customers uh, on the platform today from outside the U.S. Uh, where we have the appropriate, um, you know, say, reciprocity with those jurisdictions uh, to be able to do that. Awesome. Well, Tom, uh, thanks again for joining. Uh, this is uh, the... 
the work that is less sexy, but ultimately the only thing that really matters in terms of number go up, if you're talking about any type of demand shift in the positive direction, uh, which which obviously has a trickle down effect on the rest of the industry. So um, thanks for joining and, and congrats on uh, all the, the recent milestones that have been long in the works, but, but finally announced. Um, and for everybody watching or listening, uh, or getting this via Messenger Pigeon, however you are handling the pandemic. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll have another episode in just a couple of days. Until next time, though, thank you. Stay safe. Peace. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Unqualified Opinions go live weekdays at noon Eastern time. You can follow me in the meantime on Twitter at 2BitIdiot if you want to continue the conversation or troll me. Otherwise, I'll see you next week.